behind the award-winning documentary, She. Welcome to She Goes by Jane on Evergreen Podcasts. I'm your host, author, and poet, Amy Baker. And I'm Vanessa Ciccarelli, photographer and independent filmmaker. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the woman we are featuring. This episode features actor Mary Pat Farrell. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. Uh, Do you know what we're talking about today? I heard the name Brianna Maitland, but I don't know anything more than that. Right. So you're not necessarily someone who follows a lot of true crime stuff, which... Not necessarily. No. I mean, if it's like the biggest documentary out, then of course I'm going to be aware of it, but I'm not going to seek it out. Right. Because I think that balances us out. But do you remember any missing persons cases that like stand out to you from like your younger years? I think for me, because I grew up in Canada, it would be mostly things like Carla Homoka. Um, Not that she was missing, but that, that kind of name and that kind of crime would be standing out to me more as like one of the biggest parts of my childhood. But not, I don't, I, I still feel like as far as victims go, I, I mean, it would be like Natalie Holloway. Like I would only know things that are extremely out there. Even at that age, I wouldn't have known anything that I would have had to seek out or read in a paper or something. So Brianna Maitland is not a name that you necessarily recognize. No. But for me, it's completely different. So Brianna Maitland went missing from Vermont when I was in college. And I remember just like hearing this news and this like story really sticking out to me. She's like a little bit younger than I am. And so the moment I heard this story, the story has stuck with me. And I think about her quite often and her family quite often which is weird because like I don't have a connection to them but just like carry her story with me which is nice because people need that too right so I I wanted her story to be one of our first stories just because like thinking about what might have happened to her and what we know um, has been like kind of one of the important parts of me wanting to tell true crime stories okay So we're going to start out with kind of a little bit of an overview of who she was um, and then kind of get into what happened and what may have happened to her. So she was born on October 8th, 1986 in Vermont. We're talking very rural Vermont, border of Canada kind of situation. Okay. Where's she from? She lives in like very rural Vermont, like East Franklin. It's kind of like a a name that just like, it's not going to ring any bells. It's not like Burlington, Vermont or anything like that. Her parents' home is like 300 feet from the Canadian border. Okay. So she's much more north than Burlington. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She grows up in this like very rural area with her parents and her brother. And One of her friends, Shauna LaBelle, says she's fun, outgoing, very smart, not really a girly girl at all. So, you know, once she becomes a teenager, there's some, like, tension in the home as far as I can tell. Uh, Maybe some, like, disagreements between her parents and her father is going to move out, at least temporarily, to Enosburg Falls. And she wants to move with him. Okay, and that's still within Vermont? Yes. Okay. So we're we're staying this in Vermont. This entire story stays in Vermont, right? As, well, parts of it might not, but... Okay. We are firmly centered in 
Very rural Vermont. Okay. So she's going to live with him, but those kind of arrangements fall through, and he decides to not move at all. But she really wants to. And so she decides that she is going to move out on her own, and she'll move in with her boyfriend. Okay. And how old is she at this point? So she's about 17 years old when this is happening. And I think that might be a sticking point for some people. Like, how could you let your kid move out at 17? But, like, I know quite a few people who transition around then. Well, and this was what year you said? This is 2004. It's in the early 2000s. Okay. Because I just – I feel like 17 is really young. And it's really young for our standards right now. But just 15, 20 years ago, we were treating 17-year-olds like adults. Right. So it's like if I'm if I'm putting that in relation to my own childhood, 17, we would have been able to move out and do things like that. Now, not so much. Right. She moves in with this boyfriend, but also things are really unsettled for her at this time. Like she's going through this kind of transitional phase. But, you know, she really wants to go to school in Inniesburg Falls. So this seems to be like where she wants to be. Um, she has friends there like more of a social circle. Some of her friends say that she starts partying a lot, which, you know, is also fairly typical to go from like living with a parent to being on your own independently. Those kinds of things might increase. Right. And she's so young. So maybe, maybe it would be nice to have the freedom of moving out. Right. Right. So her friend Shauna says she starts hanging out with a crowd that Shauna doesn't approve of. Her friends really emphasized that she was not a drug addict, but that she had started to experiment using drugs like pot and sometimes like cocaine and crack a few times, kind of in a partying social circle. That escalated. Sorry, I was just not ready to go from pot to crack, but sure. Okay, we're dabbling. We're, We're dabbling. Okay. Yes. Part of her social circle includes, you know, she she's seen sometimes with these two men who have come up from New York City. And it's very clear that their purpose for being in rural Vermont is for drug-related purposes. How close she is to these two men is, there's a lot of debate there, but, you know, she has been seen with them. She ends up dropping out of school in 2004. Okay. So... Things have gotten a little bit more rough. And that's high school. She's still in high school? She's still in high school. Yeah. So in February of 2004, she is at a party in Enosburg. And during this party, there is a disagreement between her and a girl that she sees as a friend. And the sort of of focal point of it is about the attention of boys. Brianna gets in her boyfriend's truck. And her friend comes out, they're arguing through the window, and her her friend punches her in the face. She does have to go to the emergency room for this, and she ends up with two black eyes and a concussion. It's a punch. It is a punch. Yeah. So this is in late February. Her mom wants her to press charges against the girl. I don't blame her. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good good advisement by mom there. And so they do. She starts living with her friend Jillian Stout. It's around this time that it seems like Brianna is starting to kind of reconsider the directions and things have been going as she's been living independently. 
So she's living with this friend and the friend says like, you know, things are pretty normal for them. Like she's not partying as much. They just come home, they watch TV or read and that's kind of their every day. On March 19th, 2004, this is a Friday. This is a day that's pretty important in this whole story. So her mother takes her to go and take a math test, which is part of her GED. So she's decided to get her GED instead. After they leave there, they go clothes shopping in St. Albans, Vermont. They're looking to buy some clothes because Brianna is now working two jobs. One is at a diner in St. Albans, and her other job is at the Black Lantern Inn in Montgomery, Vermont. Okay, I've been to St. Albans and trying to picture where you would buy clothing there. Yeah. It's so small. It is so small. So we're not we're not talking like a bigger place at all. St. Albans is quite tiny. It's very tiny. I think it's important to actually bring that up because sometimes when people talk about this moment that's about to happen, they talk about it like they're at a mall and... Oh, there are no malls in St. Albans. Yeah. No, this would be a small store if it was anything. Yeah. Every, every time I, I see them, like, you know, bring this up and mentioning, like, being shopping at a mall, like, that's not what mm -hmm. we're talking about here. We're talking, like, stores on streets kind of situation. Right. It's like a very tiny downtown area with a few storefronts and that's that's all I can remember from it. You? Right, yeah. yeah, that's really what it is. So her mother says that Rihanna sees somebody, something outside and gets nervous and leaves the store. And by the time her mother catches up with her, she seems nervous and unsettled. Okay. Her mother though, that, that doesn't really want to pry because they're kind of rebuilding this relationship and like she really doesn't want to like poke too much into her personal business in this time. Yeah, it's hard as a parent knowing what, especially because they've already had like a bit of a, a rocky go with her wanting to move out and everything. So I don't blame her. Yeah. So like when to pry and what to pry. Right. It's hard being a parent with the balance. So her mother knows that they have to get back. She has to drop her back off at Jillian's house so that Brianna can get ready for her night shift at the Black Lantern Inn. Jillian's living in another small rural town in Vermont called Sheldon. So at about 3 p.m., her mother drops her off at the friend's house and Brianna leaves a note for her friend that says, I get off work between 10 and 12, I'll see you after. So Brianna goes to her job. She's working as a dishwasher. So that's why there's like that kind of like bigger scope of time because when you're working in the service industry, sometimes you just like don't have a clear indication of when your end point might be for the night. So the Black Lantern Inn is in Montgomery. Montgomery is a very small town. We're talking about like population around 900. I mean, it's like a, a one road kind of town situation. Her parents are actually out that night as well. And, you know, they kind of have a conversation about like dropping in to see her at her job as a surprise but they don't want to like embarrass her, make things awkward at her new workplace. So they like decide not to. And we know that her shift at the Black Lantern ends at 11.20. So she leaves her job. She says goodnight to her coworkers. So the reports about what happens as she leaves are divided. There are some reports that she said she was going home because she had to work the next day at her other new job. 
and that's what she said. And then there are other people who say that she said that she was going to go out socializing after work. But it's important to note that police have not interviewed anyone who can definitively say that they were with her after 11.20 p.m. Okay, and did she, she wrote in the note that she was going home? The yes. The note to her friend? Yes. Okay. So at 11.20, she leaves. All of these times become really significant. Between 11.30 and 12.30, so this hour gap of time, someone says that they see her car backed into a building with its headlights on. What do you mean backed into the building? Not backed into it, into it? Backed into it, into it. So we're not always going to do this because I think visuals are hard, but I'm going to show you a picture and we'll include this on our website. Okay. Because I think that the car um, situation, it gives me immediate ick feelings. Okay, so... Oh, it's an is it an open door? So what we're looking... Can you see? So yeah, what we're so looking like, at is... Are we backed up to like an abandoned house with boarded up windows mm-hmm. and the back end is into a door opening on the side of this house? She's not actually like smashed into it. She is smashed oh, into it. Oh, she is smashed into it. Okay. Yes. It looks like a square cutout, but it's it's so, not. That's a smash out. Well, so what it is is um, where the car is backed into, there is an opening where a window was also boarded up. Okay. So she just happened to back through that way. But so she's, is that an actual picture of it? This isn't. This is the next day. This is. This so photo. the car was abandoned there? The car, someone says that they see the car there backed into this house between 11.30 and 12.30. Okay. And there's nobody in the car? Um, They don't say. Okay. So they're passing by. Now, this image, like, immediately gives me the, like, complete, like, full body ick because it is so unsettling to see this setup. It's just really unusual. It is very unusual. Like, if somebody is going to... Say somebody drank too much and they're driving and they go through an old building. It's forward, not this way. Yeah. So a little bit about this house is abandoned. It was abandoned in the 1990s. It is on a curve in the road. So you leave Montgomery, head out of town. That's where it is. The doors and windows all have plywood over them. We're about a mile and a half-ish from the Black Lantern, so we're not too far away. This house is in the direction of where she was staying, so she would have had to pass by here. Now, this house is known as the Dutchburn House. This is the house of Mike and Harry Dutchburn, who were elderly dairy farmers. They had lived there, and during their time living there, they actually had to deal with a lot of cars going off the road in front of their house. Right, which happens, I think, in rural areas when people are driving at night and going a little too fast. Going or... a little too fast, especially like those houses on curves. Yeah. That's going to happen. Mike and Harry, like they were in their 70s when they were living there. And in 1986, a stranger broke into their house and beat both of these men and stole about like $6,000 from them. Those men were eventually arrested and convicted, but Mike and Harry never felt comfortable living there after that. Just Um, curiosity, are they a couple? Brothers. Brothers, okay. 
And so, you know, this house has already given me bad vibes, really. And this house no longer exists. It was burned down in 2016 by a bunch of teenagers. This house is doomed. Right. So we do know accidents happened on this stretch of road. But the thing about this is like the curve. It really does not make sense for like a car going off the road to be like backed into it in this manner. Right. And it does kind of, I, I know you said that she actually did break into the building a little bit, but it looks like it was almost gently done. Right, so the car itself is hung up on the foundation, like the back of it is up a little. Okay. So 11.30 to 12.30, we know someone sees the car with the headlights on. Um, so we're talking anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes from when people last saw her. And we are like a mile and a half away. Definitely doesn't take 10 minutes to do that. No. So things get a little bit stranger. She is dating or has had a relationship with this guy named James and he has various stories but kind of says between 2 and 4 a.m. he passes by and sees her car. Her car is quite distinct. It's a 1985 Oldsmobile sedan. It's kind of in this pale green color and she got the car when her her grandfather who she adored passed away and the car was passed on to her so he sees the vehicle he recognizes that it's hers and he stops and gets out and there's various stories but he may or may not have like turned the the headlights off but she's nowhere around okay he doesn't alert anyone and there's varying stories that he gave some of which are that he himself has been drinking and didn't want to get in trouble for anything if he happened to call the police and they came. Okay. And he doesn't know if he turned off the lights or not? There's some stories that say he did, some that okay. that don't. Okay, so this boyfriend. Now, do we know how old he is or what he does? Like, does he have any criminal records himself? So... I mean, I think it's important to know that this this guy, James, has since passed away in a, like, car crash in 2019. I mean, he has a really spotty record of arrests, but it really didn't necessarily feel like police were pinpointing him in her being missing. We don't know if he was with her when she backed up the car. According to his story, he was not there. Okay. That he has just simply been passing by and saw the saw the vehicle, stopped to check it out. She's not there. He turns off the lights maybe and leaves. And did he alert anybody when that happened? No. That seems weird. It does. It does. In his defense, I mean, I'm not sure that's quite the word I want. You know, someone else had passed by between 1130 and 1230 and seen her car. And another person said between 12 and 1230, they see her car. And that person says that they think that they remember her turn signal being on. So like we potentially have like as many as like three people passing by in the night seeing this car and kind of shrugging their shoulders and... Not one reported it. No. Okay. The next day, other people are passing by it during the daytime. And it looks unusual and unsettling enough that some of them take photos of this car. So the photo that I just showed Vanessa and that we'll put some copies of on our website, that is because of these passerbys who stopped and took some photos. Okay. So nobody's involved right now. People are noticing though. People are noticing. And, you know, 
Some of her personal belongings are on the ground, including a broken necklace. There's some plastic bottles, like water bottles. Those are all on the ground. And we have not heard from her. We have not heard from her. Eventually, a trooper does stop and sees the vehicle, checks it over. He does not take any photographs of the vehicle. So again, the only photographs that exist are because these passerbys took them. He looks inside the vehicle and he notices that there are two paychecks for Brianna from the Black Lantern Inn. He makes the decision that he's going to go to the Black Lantern and ask them about Brianna. Okay. The car is in her mother's name, but he does not call her at all. Which seems strange. It does seem strange. So his his sort of follow-up is he drives the Black Lantern. Now, the Black Lantern, nobody is there. Right. No, I mean, it's great to contact the employer, but also shouldn't you be calling the name that's on the car? That should be, I would assume, standard procedure, but he does not do that. And kind of like what is said afterwards is that essentially it's rural Vermont and they frequently see disabled vehicles places. And so the level of concern is not there. Nobody's been reported missing. It's just a vehicle like smashed into an abandoned piece of property. Now, I also have some questions about wouldn't there be claims about property damage because that house is damaged. Right. But none of that is well, also just up on. calling the person who the car belongs to and saying, hey, what did you do with your car? Right. <laughs> Why is it in this building? Yeah. Come get your car. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, um, the car is towed. Okay. So it's towed. He goes to the Black Lantern. Nobody is there. And then essentially, that's it. So at this point, nobody's reporting her missing because nobody in her family or friends knows about this, right? Or or right. has she been reported missing? She's not been reported missing. Okay, so so this I, is... again, had he called the name on the car, the mom could have said, yes, my daughter's been driving that. Let's find my daughter. Right. That is not what happens, though. <sighs> I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. 
To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Now, if you remember, Brianna wrote a note to Jillian that said that she would be back between 10 and 12. Right. Brianna obviously does not show back up, and Jillian assumes that Brianna changed her mind and might have gone home. So she knows that she's not there, doesn't say anything. At this point, her boyfriend James knows, but also doesn't say anything. He saw the vehicle, but he knows she's not in it. Right. Nobody's looking for her. Nobody's looking for her. But Jillian just, like, has made this assumption. I get the sense that Brianna kind of changing her plans and heading home might have been a thing. So Jillian goes to her grandparents for the weekend. And when she gets back, she expects Brianna to be there or to have heard from her. And she's not. Are we concerned now? So now we're concerned. So it's Tuesday. Brianna left the Black Lantern in Friday night. So when Jillian gets back... Brianna's not there. She calls Brianna's parents. Okay. Finally, somebody calls the parents. Right. So her dad is away for work. Her mom is there, though, and her mom calls 911 and um, reports her missing. And this is when kind of things pick up. But, like, she's calling everyone possible and no one has seen her. On Wednesday, her dad has driven home overnight they're looking for her they're driving around on thursday her parents go to the police barracks and that is when finally there is a connection made between the car and brianna so when they went there they did the police finally figure that out or did they see the car so i believe the the police finally put it put together. It together okay but until now the parents did not know that the car had been found so this is the first time that they're realizing that her car has been found and also she is not there. Okay. Her parents find out that the car has been taken to an auto body shop. This car has not been searched at all. So her her dad goes and begins to worry that possibly Brianna's body is in the trunk. And so he crowbars open the trunk looking for her. That would be every parent's nightmare. Right. Well, this whole story is, but that moment, I can't even imagine what he was feeling. Yeah. So we're now like a a full week out from her being missing. And just now the pieces start coming together. Her parents kind of blanket the area with missing persons posters. It's not until the 30th of March that the car is being processed for prints and DNA. So like the, the whole beginning process is going quite slow. So they're taking it seriously, but slowly. Like slowly. You know, I think like every time like you see one of those things, it's like the first 48 hours are the most important, you know, and like. We ignored the first 48 hours. We ignored the first 48 hours, right? Like if her boyfriend had said something or if the police officer had called her mom and been like, we found this car. I'm still surprised they didn't call about the car at all. And they just put it at like an auto body shop. Like, right. Like, like don't you want to let that person know? Yeah. Like you have to come claim your car and then you could figure out what happened and press any charges that would need to be of like ruining someone else's property. <laughs> yeah. Because like very clearly an accident with property damage 
has occurred. It doesn't matter that the Dutch burn house was abandoned, like the, the house itself, the structure has been damaged. It still belongs to somebody whether it's abandoned or not, right? right. So I mean, yes. it has to be like things have to be held accountable at some point. Mm -hmm. On April 1st, Class Kids Foundation, which is named after Paul Class, they come out and about 300 people start like a concerted effort in searching for her. They don't find anything. So the next weekend, her dad organizes volunteers and gets about like 50 to 60 people out there. The police finally start interviewing people and they interview like 60 plus people. There's a subpoena for seven different people to testify. Some of those include like the, the woman who punched Brianna in the face trying to figure out like what people might know. There's a $10,000 reward for her return. Now her dad though, and her, her family really wants to emphasize at the point that like not enough was done to aggressively look for her. The dad points out that the police didn't tell them about the car until five days later. Like as he's, he's writing to the governor, like. This would be, this would be horrific as a parent, just, or anybody who's trying to find someone who, just all that time wasted at the beginning. Right. It just seems. And he thinks that like some of the sluggishness about dealing with it and looking for her is that she's kind of being characterized and classified as a runaway. Right. She'd been having a rough patch and going through some things. And so she gets like kind of lumped into someone who purposefully does not want to be found. He also emphasizes that the crime scene itself where the car was found, all of that was destroyed in the process. So like no evidence was taken initially in this process. What about footprints? What about other types of evidence? Like there was snow and then there wasn't snow. So what got lost in that moment? Right. And they did talk about like that broken necklace and everything. Does the dad know about that at this point? Yes. Those items were like put into the car. Her mom starts having dreams where she is dreaming about her daughter's disappearance and she keeps on waking up every time before she finds out like what happened to her. In the early days, they find some clothes in the woods near Montgomery. There's some speculation that they might be hers, and so that's investigated. The police also told them that they had found remains in a garbage bag near where she went missing, and they go to bed, like, basically, like, praying that it's not her. And, yeah, they're told the next day that those were actually pig remains. Oh, my goodness. That's... Okay. They shouldn't yeah. have been told about those in the first place then. Right, until you let's, figure let's it out. Let's find out if they're pig or human before we tell anyone's family. Right. There's, like, reports of people seeing her working at a strip club in Boston. There's reports of people seeing her in various locations. So her parents are, like, literally driving all throughout the Northeast. They go to, like, Boston. They're going to Montreal, Syracuse, Albany. Like, they're covering a good swath of the Northeast just trying to chase leads down. And these people who saw her, they're reporting this without talking to her. So we don't know if it's even her. Right. So somebody who looks like her. Somebody who looks like her. And like one thing about her is that like she's very pretty, but also like as you look at her, you, you can easily see how like other people could be mistaken for her. Like she just kind of has like one of those faces where like... Maybe a lot of people, a lot of girls look like her. Yeah. Okay. Have kind of those like similar enough features that, you know, people are trying to be helpful, but nothing's coming to fruition here. And the other thing that happens is that there's another case that happened the month earlier in New Hampshire where Maura Murray 
goes missing. And this is a pretty major story that also is currently unsolved and deserves to be solved, but it gets such buzz and attention that it kind of drowns out a little bit of what's happening to Brianna. So once Mora goes missing, we're not paying attention to Brianna? Is that what you're telling me? So Mora goes missing the month before, and like a lot of the media attention and focus is on this like very like mysterious case of this college student who goes missing. You know, Brianna's case, like if people are originally thinking that she's a runaway. Now we don't care as much. Right. So she doesn't get that kind of immediate push. Mora's dad and Brianna's dad kind of make a connection with each other, largely because there's not a lot of people who understand and know what they're going through and they're going through it at the same time and kind of in the same, you know, geographic area. There are a lot of people who speculate that the two are connected because there's a lot of similarities between the two. They are missing a little over a month from each other. 60 miles ish apart. Both involve women driving alone. Both involve cars left damaged at night on remote country roads. So there's like these components that people are like, are they connected or not? Police though say very emphatically that there's no serial killer out there, at least in this case. Okay. So they're similar, but we're not really connecting that. Right. And finally, the Vermont State Police, this is a Lieutenant Tom Nelson, he comes out kind of like swinging against Brianna. He says, Brianna has a very questionable background. She made some unhealthy life choices. And that's the, his way of emphasizing that she's somehow responsible for what happened. But he's also somehow responsible for finding out what happened. <laughs> Right. So around April 15th, they get an anonymous tip. An anonymous tip is that she's being held against her will at a house about 11 miles from where she disappeared. The troopers go and they search and they find four people, two of which are those guys from New York City that I mentioned previously and two other people. You know, they say they last saw her about a week before she went missing. They do not find her in this house, but they do find drug items in this house. Okay. So most likely what they're saying is true they hadn't seen her since before then is it we don't know we don't know we don't know but they kind of say like we haven't seen her okay so by 2006 so two years later things have really stagnated in this case not a lot of information is being shared and what happens is there's a man in Atlantic City who is from Vermont, and he's at Caesars gambling, and he says that he saw her on January 17th, 2006 at the casino. So he claims she's still alive two years later. He is passing through the casino, and he feels like he saw her. Is he just another one of those people, though? That's just like, she looks like this girl, so I'm going to report this. Yeah, but this is like the one like thing that kind of gets her story kind of back. In. So regardless of if he knew what he was doing or not, it was a good move. Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, there's this moment where, you know, her story becomes shared again. Like, is it her? Is it not? Her parents actually go down to Atlantic City to look at the original video because like video footage copied gets grainy. And like her mom says like, oh, like her hand and foot movements kind of resemble her, but they don't, it ends up not being a lead. In 2007, kind of a similar thing happens in which Dateline runs an episode about her and someone says that they saw her at the casinos in Atlantic City and said that like they think that she's a homeless person and missing on the streets. 
that ends up not panning out either. Also in that year, a pair of jeans is found in a remote part of the woods. So another... Back in Vermont? Back in Vermont. So another kind of clothing item being found. Um, the jeans were weathered, so they'd been there for a while. And so police searched the woods for like six hours that like first day and like they search again and again. The brand is like a brand that she would have worn. The forensic lab like can't get enough DNA, so they send it to the FBI. But that lead doesn't pan out either. So we've just got a bunch of dead ends. All dead ends. So it's not until 2008 that police start saying very publicly that they believe that she was a victim of foul play. So Detective Lieutenant Glenn Hall says there's no indication she was going to take off. We've taken a hard look at the evidence we do have. The scene where the car was found, we've delved into people associated with her and who had contact with her in the days and weeks prior, and there's no indication that she just up and left, which leads us to believe that something happened to her and it wasn't good. Okay, well at least she's no longer being just called a runaway or a little troublemaking girl. Right. At least now we're taking it seriously. But then it's also taken them four years to get to that point. Right. Yeah. So from kind of the slow start to brushing it off as, you know, she's a runaway as though runaways are not also at risk. Right. I think they're more at risk. Exactly. To finally admitting in 2008 that something happened. So in 2012, so we're now eight years out, her case gets kind of bumped up again. And this is largely because of a serial killer who is known because he kind of traveled a bit through the United States and, and potentially killed people in different spots of the country. And one of those places, he killed a couple in Vermont. So they think it's possible that he killed her while going through Vermont. So that's one of the theories, right? It's because he owned a house in Constable, New York. Okay. Wow, all the little towns. All the little towns. So Constable's a little town near us. And people say that he was seen in Vermont. But one of the things about him is they do have some documentation of where he was. And his financial records indicate that he was elsewhere on that day on March 19th, 2004. So it cannot be him. It is very unlikely that it's him. So that brings us up to now, where there's slightly more happening in her case, but like still a lot of unknowns. So the Vermont State Police partnered with Othram Inc., which is a laboratory, an organization that does genetic genealogy to help solve crimes. So where do they get this genetic material for it? So they have some DNA that was found near her car. Okay. And being very vague there because the police have been very vague about reporting what it was just near her car. Othram Labs has reported back that they identified the source of that DNA. But police have said, and they have stressed, that doesn't mean that they've identified a subject at all. It just means that there was DNA. They figured out whose DNA that was. And they didn't say whose it was? No. And so did they find that DNA when they first found the car? Or did they go back later? Because it seems like when they first found the car, they didn't really think it was foul play. Yeah, so it seems like in that first Saturday, the day after when the police officer found it, seems like very little evidence was collected or no evidence was collected. Right, because so. if you think it's just a regular like abandoned car, you wouldn't do, like, you wouldn't be searching for DNA. Right. 
I mean, it legit seems like, you know, he rolled up, sees this car, sees some stuff on the grind outside, like throws that into the car and gets it towed. And that was kind of... Right. So how long after did we go back for this DNA? So, I mean, it seems like that would have been, I'm guessing, at least a week later because there was no necessary crime until her parents were like, that's our car and our daughter is missing. Right. And it's in the winter and things are melting. Is it possible that if there was more, it could have just been flushed away with the the melting snow? Yeah, well, that's what her dad says. Like, you know, that there was no clear established crime scene, like, immediately. And that that lack of follow-through impacted whether there was evidence or not. Like, it impacted that. Right. And so nothing came from that DNA anyways. It possibly has, and police just are... Just keeping it to themselves for now. Keeping it to themselves for now. I hope so. They say now, so Captain Scott Dunlap of the Major Crimes Department says, we've never lost sight of Brianna's case and have worked relentlessly to find out what happened to her so we can provide answers to her loved ones and hold any offenders accountable. So it sounds like it's being taken seriously now then. Yeah, I mean, like there seems to be, you know, in 2008, they start acknowledging, oh, something happened to her. And have kind of been moving forward in that vein since then, at the very least. But her mom brings up, like, a really easy point, which is overlooked, which is that Brianna's paychecks were in her vehicle. If you were actually going to be a runaway, you would not have left what would have been for her a a substantial amount of money behind. Absolutely. And I just, if she was running away, why would she be backing up to a building, going into the building? You would want your vehicle also... Like, that doesn't account for, like, the the broken necklace. Mm -hmm. It just seems, it doesn't seem like a runaway situation to me. Also, leaving that note for the, for her roommate saying, I'll be back, getting ready for the job the next day. None of this sounds like a, a runaway situation to me. Right. I think one of the things is if you listen to what is now a pool of information about this case is that there are a lot of theories about what might have happened to her. Like any small town, there's a lot of gossip about what could have happened. And there are people who firmly believe that they know who did it. But it's one of those cases where like someone just needs to say the thing. They probably do know because I I came from a small town and normally there's a lot more truth in that gossip at the core of it than anyone really would want to admit. I think there's a lot usually added on to make it, you know, that much more exciting. But if you keep hearing the central part of that, of those rumors to be similar, then there's probably a, a bit more truth to it. Right. And like, we're not getting into all those theories because there's just like not those like factual established things to back it up and like really the emphasis should be that like a young woman who was really trying to start her life was trying to take steps to move forward in her life is missing and like that's the important part of the story I think rather than getting caught up in like the kind of gossip theories yeah but you do know that they know who did it I do know they do (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah So you've been following this case since Brianna first went missing, and now we're looking at almost 20 years and it's still not solved. Do you think that there's hope for that in the future? Wait, so like she went missing my senior year of college, and if I think about all the life that I've lived in that time that she might not have, kind of those 
those touch points, all the things that I've done that she was not able to do. And I think like, I, it's really great that they're still working on her case, that they involved Othram in the next steps. And I hope that that continues to gain traction and they're able to put together more pieces to figure out what happened to her. And that if there are people in this small town who do know, or small towns who do know what happened to her, that finally at some point they're willing to come forward and say what they know about what happened that night. Right. And we know for sure something happened that there's not a little tiny shred of hope out there that maybe she is out living that amount of life. I think it's highly unlikely. I think the switch in 2008 to actually saying that they know something happened to her likely means that police were able to gain at least some amount of evidence to switch from thinking of her as a runaway to something having happened to her. So I, I think it's unlikely, although I wish that wasn't true. Right. And I bet her parents, any way it happens, are going to want some closure. Right. Getting some sort of answers is so important. It really is. Now we are going to listen to Amy's poem, Rest Your Head Beside the Mountains, read by Mary Pat Farrell. Mary Pat was born and raised in Vermont and currently resides in Los Angeles. She is an improviser and actress, an alumnus of the Second City, and has most recently appeared on Night Court, 911, and On the Verge. Rest your head beside the mountains. If you sketched that early morning, a study of swallow down and dishwater would appear before the overpainted car came into focus. Headlights turned out, bumper settled into the side of a wretched farmhouse both abandoned like corn husks beside a Vermont road. Water bottles scattered in the yellowing grass in the snow edge clearing where no footprints leave trace of passage. Take her sky gray night layered with fog and place your head beneath the curtain where you will see the current that pulls you here from the back room of an inn closed in the years since she's been gone. She never felt the mountains rising in the distance, watching over a place where does skim past, a place where her body was not laid to rest in hollow dirt. But you will know to leave this haunted place. You've got to move on. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. 
It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.